Okay, good evening, everybody. If I can welcome you, uh, my name is Justin Parkhurst. I am an associate professor here in the Department of Health Policy. I'm also currently uh, chairing the LSE Global Health Initiative, which has helped to pull together this talk today. We were very uh, happy and excited to be able to have a slot in the Beverage 2.0 Festival. Um, from a global health perspective, we, we would, I think, say that uh, you know, healthcare is, is a fundamental element of the welfare state. We all recognize that. Uh, and it's one of the most globalized. It's, it's one of the few kind of areas of social welfare and social services where we are seeing global efforts and global governance uh, and international donor actions in a very coordinated way. But it raises a lot of questions. And that's what we're really here to discuss. So we've got a great panel. Uh, we've got um, who will be, we'll be, we'll be talking a little bit uh, informally. We won't necessarily be talking to slides. I have a couple of slides to introduce the topic. But we have Professor Calypso Chokadu who is the Director for Global Health Policy at the Center for Global Development, but also Professor in Practice at Imperial College. Uh, we have Professor Ken Shadlin, who is the uh, current Head of Department from the International Development Department here at the LSE. And Daniel Wang, who is a lecturer in Health and Human Rights at Queen Mary University. And they'll each be talking to this topic from their, their own unique fieldwork and disciplinary perspectives. Very briefly, as just to set the stage before I hand over to our panel, I think we all recognize that there's tremendous uh, differences in what countries spend on health care. And when many people look at a graph like this, these are data from 2011, often the attention is drawn to the biggest bar here, the United States, which stands out in terms of how much it spends, but also that it doesn't necessarily guarantee universal coverage. But today we're really going to be focusing more at the other end of this chart. Uh, if you look down at the far right, the three countries, China, Indi Indonesia, uh, which at tw in 2011 have relatively quite small expenditures on health. These countries actually represent um, nearly 3 billion people. Uh, these are three of the four largest countries in the world in terms of population. And over time, this is, uh, this is OECD D data, we see that although they're still down at the bottom right of this uh, chart primarily, the, the figures are, are increasing. So we see nearly a doubling, uh, in, in, or doubling or more in, in at least one instance, Indonesia's case, of expenditures on health. Uh, in these countries with enormous populations. And you know, middle-income countries in general, many of which are seeing uh, financial growth, not necessarily um, in, in all cases, but many are seeing tremendous financial growth and increasing demands on social welfare services. And it begs the question of how do we then achieve universal care and what that means. Many of you will be familiar with this image. This is from the World Health Organization. Uh, there are three dimensions, their famous cube model on universal coverage. In the middle of this model are the funds, that spend expenditure on health we saw in the last graph. Um, and they see it access or, or achieving universal health care as expansion in three dimensions. On one side, it's extending the number of people who are covered, population who is covered. This is the x-axis, if you will. The y-axis is how much people pay for the cost of their covering, um, direct cost, the proportion of the cost covering, reducing cost sharing. And the z-axis, if you will, the depth axis, which services are included in the package. And as you increase funds, you can make decisions on whether you increase packages of services, population coverage, or reduce cost sharing and reducing fees. Now, these often are seen as very technical. And those who work in, in health and health systems recognize the dominance of the, the clinical and the medical lens to look at issues of health care. But those of us who work in social science uh, recognize that decision making is always political in one way or another. These are trade-offs that have to be made. There are issues in terms of, we, of, of how we define people's rights and access uh, in terms of whose interests are being served by the decisions we make uh, in, in this case. So that's what our panel is going to speak to, as I said, again, from each of their own perspectives. I'm going to move down here 
But the first uh, one of our panelists who will talk will be Calypso Chalkadoo. And if I can start, I would just like to ask each of our panel members to talk to us a little bit about, explain a little bit about where they've worked, the context in which they've worked, and the types of things they've been doing uh, which speak towards this issue of achieving universal access. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so I've been uh, working over the past 10 years or so on um, how decisions are made to inform the what of the cube that Justin showed. So uh, when governments are committed towards achieving universal coverage, and right now there is a UN resolution saying uh, all countries on the planet effectively, including the United States, will work towards achieving universal coverage um, for health. Uh, the question, one of the major questions in, in my opinion, and it doesn't get a lot of attention unfortunately, is um, how one decides what services and technologies people get access to in the context of that universal healthcare coverage. And so my work has been um, mostly working with governments and national payers, uh, health insurance funds um, in, in countries like the ones that, uh, that Justin highlighted, China and India and Indonesia, mostly middle-income countries and some lower middle-incomes as well, such as Ghana, for instance, in South Africa, um, trying to, to understand what mechanisms um, could be put in place to inform in a way that's accountable, to some extent informed by evidence, but also local values, and, and therefore defensible way how uh, decisions about coverage uh, of technologies and services can be, can be made. And so I started off working at NICE and we set up an international division there. Uh, NICE is part of the National Health Service and, and helps the health service make decisions about priorities. And I'm now working with CGD and, and also at Imperial, as Justin said. Um, and I think the point I wanted to make is you, talk, you mentioned trade-offs, and I think that's really critical, it's really important, and ultimately that's, uh, it, it's about governance, uh, and it's about accountability, holding people to account, and you can't hold people to account for the decisions they make unless uh, you have information about the trade-offs. So a lot of the time, setting priorities for spending uh, uh, on health uh, happens very in, in an implicit way, <coughs> and this includes the National Health Service, I mean, other than NICE, uh, most of the services people access uh, depends on all sorts of things, and there's all sorts of, of rationing that's not necessarily clear uh, or done in a sort of an equitable and accountable fashion. But certainly in governments like Indonesia, for instance, where they're seeing uh, taxes, uh, tax revenue grow, uh, they're setting up national health insurance funds, uh, they start having their own money to spend, donors are departing, but they've got their own domestic resources, the same situation in countries like the Philippines and Thailand. Uh, these countries are now starting to spend their own resources, and the question is, how do they do that? How do they decide? How do they negotiate with uh, uh, suppliers, including providers of services, hospitals, but also uh, product manufacturers? And we'll talk about this a bit more later on. And so what are the trade-offs? So I just want to give you a few examples of the sort of trade-offs that I've, I've, I've come across working in, in different countries. Um, and some of them are sort of the global scale, and some are very specific to individual countries. So for instance, India, uh, a, a, about 18 months ago announced that it will cover dialysis for everybody. Now, if you cost this out, it, it's actually greater. The amount of money required every year to cover dialysis for those who need it is greater than the budget of the National uh, Health Mission, which is the flagship program has been up until recently uh, in healthcare in India. India spends a bit over 1% of its GDP public money on health. And so it's, this is clearly a promise, a commitment that cannot be realized. So some people will get dialysis and some people will not. It's not at all clear uh, what the criteria will be. In, uh, again, staying with dialysis in South Africa, 
um, at least between 1988 and, and the late 90s, and this may well have changed now, but we don't have much data. Uh, if you were white with end-stage kidney disease, you were four times as more likely to get access to dialysis services than if you were black. So this was clearly a process of prioritizing people depending on the color of their skin. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's, there's massive trade-offs that, uh, that, that come with making decisions about investing in health. Another example is in Colombia, and, and perhaps we'll talk a bit more later. Um, at least when I worked there, now it's almost 10 years ago, um, the, uh, the, the, the judiciary would decide on exceptional cases of mostly pharmaceutical products and other services that people ought to have access to. Um, and the budget for that uh, uh, sort of extraordinary process of decision making was greater than the budget the government ha had allocated to uh, looking after displaced populations in Colombia, which at the time Colombia had the second largest after Darfur, second largest displaced population. So you can imagine how much money they were spending uh, outside the healthcare budget to cover this sort of extraordinary request, which were predominantly coming from middle class people who were taking the health system to court. And not that it was a faultless system, but that's what, what was happening. Um, another example is that, um, you know, in, in South Africa, again, there was a recent decision to cover Herceptin for breast cancer early and advanced. And this is a country that invests very little in early detection, in screening, or indeed in, in managing people with metastasis, managing palliative care, pain control. So you, you have a relatively expensive drug being reimbursed in the public system, uh, but people uh, you know, being diagnosed too late to benefit from it if they ever get into the system, certainly the public system, uh, and, and not having basic pain control for those who are uh, nearing the end of their lives. So th these sort of trade-offs that uh, um, I think are really important to highlight, identify, and then support those who make these decisions about who gets what and at what price in setting up some processes that uh, would allow them to make these decisions in a defensible way and make them a bit more transparent uh, for everybody involved. So that's what I've been, I've been doing. And I'm wondering if I could ask, I thought one of the examples you mentioned was really interesting when you talked about the Indian promise of dialysis. And there's, there's often in, in healthcare planning a underlying ideal of a rationality and an equity uh, that every individual should be treated equally that health conditions should be, you know, treated based on need and, and the like, and cost-effectiveness analysis is one way of looking at that. Um, budgeting, rationing, all of these processes. And some countries have established formal systems to do that, but it sounds like the Indian example is, is this contrast between these ideal types and the realities of policy making. It, I could be wrong, but it sounds like, you know, this is a, a political statement which may gain political support and public support, but whether or not it actually is feasible in terms of that. So I'm wondering how much you see this tension between attempts to institutionalize systems that follow an ideal type that the public health community believes in in terms of rationally allocating funds and the political realities of how decisions get made. I think that's a very real tension. And in fact, I mean, cost effectiveness analysis is hardly a panacea of the solution to, to all problems. It just, it's one input and it helps you uh, assess the sort of benefits and the costs of alternatives. Um, so it's a useful input, I think, in making decisions. So not many countries actually use it. And in many cases, the data are not there uh, to, to do this kind of analysis, which is worrying in itself. But, uh, but I think there's, there's a big tension. So in the vast majority of countries we work in, uh, if you were to cost out the things that the government said 
uh, are made available to its citizens. Uh, they, they're way above, certainly middle-income, low-income countries, way above the budget that's available to the country. So it's clear that that's not possible. It's not, it's not possible to, to do what you're promising. Um, and so I think that the question becomes how explicit do you want to be uh, about what you're, you're committing to providing. And certainly Latin America governments have, become, have been fairly explicit, hence the issues with the judiciary, et cetera. But many countries, including the UK, are quite implicit in what is made available to people. Um, but the tension is certainly, is certainly there. One more point I wanted to make is that this idea of using economics, using evidence, uh, clinical, comparative clinical and cost effectiveness to inform these decisions is a, a lot of the time the development world is seen as, as a, uh, an anathema almost and many people feel that this is t totally inappropriate and goes against human rights because everybody should get access to everything and there's a bit of a confusion I think between sort of the normative and the and what the positive, what is actually happening, because not everybody gets access to everything and we know that for a fact and so unless we confront this and we try and understand why it is, uh, you know, that does not preclude us from people from, from uh, making a case for more money. Quite the opposite, having information about what this money will be invested in, what will buy you, empowers those who are paying for things. So that, that's not a bad thing. But I think that tension is, is interesting. So if, if you take the HIV world as well, though this is changing with the money sort of running out, but you know, after 10 or 15 years with the Global Fund, done a great job, you know, providing uh, uh, treatments to people with HIV, amongst other things. Um, we st it's still about one in two people in Sub-Saharan Africa who would be eligible to receive antiretroviral treatment are not on treatment. We don't know who these people are. We don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody made, you know, a conscious decision to to to, to offer care to one person, not to another. So this is a mix of factors and accessing this care, finding out who actually has the disease and then get them to, to get the treatment to them. But, but that's a fact. And also, we know that about 2 to 3% of people who are on treatment uh, are on second, third line. Drugs are quite expensive uh, and account for about 20% uh, of, of the budget, of, of treatment budget. So you can see how are these decisions made? Who decides that somebody should be put in second line treatment at this price? Uh, versus, say, seeking out, finding people who are not on treatment at all. Um, and, and as I said, that might not be a conscious choice, but it is a choice that's, that has been made uh, by mere the fact that, that, that that's the reality of HIV. And so not confronting the reality of budgetary constraints and the fact that decisions ought to be made, trade-offs ideally should be made explicit, I think is, uh, in my view, unethical. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And I think that actually segues nicely. We can move on to Ken who uh, particularly, I think you're going to talk about drugs and drug access. Um, so it follows a bit from that HIV example, perhaps. Uh, Ken has been uh, lecturing today and tells me that his voice is starting to go. So he will, I think, do his best to speak directly into the microphone. I yeah. hope <clears throat> My voice has more than started to go. My voice is gone. But uh, yeah, <clears throat> I'll do the best I can. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, notwithstanding no voice. I'm going to pick up on something Calypso said about the trade-offs having to do with advanced age, uh, antiretroviral treatment. I'll come to that in a moment. Let me start with the issue of the trade-offs, as Justin posed it. And in my work is a, I'm a political scientist, and I work in international and comparative politics, largely around issues having to do with trade and health, and a particularly interest in intellectual property around pharmaceutical patents. A lot of my work for the last 10 years or so has been 
driven by this issue of pharmaceutical, the politics of pharmaceutical patenting um, globally, but also with a particular focus in Latin America. The reason why that matters is that, and so what I'm interested in actually is the way that, to get to the trade-offs issue, is one of the potential ways that there might be trade-offs between a health policy that's focused on achieving universal access, where universalism includes in that definition access to a wide variety of high-quality drugs over a wide range of, range of therapeutic areas. The trade-off between that on the one hand and trade policy. Now you might ask, or you might think there shouldn't be a trade-off, that they should be go hand in hand. After all, if a country's trade policy might lead to more exports, and more exports might lead to more revenues to be able to spend more on health. The reason why there's a trade-off is because trade policy is through this area of intellectual property. And that's what I've been trying to examine in a lot of my research, and I'll try to summarize in a few minutes here if you can hear me and I survive. Forty years ago, there were no patents on pharmaceutical products virtually anywhere on the planet Earth. Forty years ago, if you invented a new microphone, you could get a patent on that new microphone almost anywhere. But 40 years ago, if you got a new, invented a new molecule to treat something, you could get a patent on that here and France and West Germany and the U.S. That was basically it. The, pat the patent system has spread. First it spread in sort of the OECD countries, and then more recently, beginning in the 1990s, it spread through the developing world. There were changes in the international trading system, which we could talk about later, that make it obligatory for all countries to grant patents on pharmaceuticals. So it's a new thing. Again, it's not something that existed when most of us were growing up. Now countries can go about implementing this new obligation in all sorts of different ways. So you can imagine 10 different countries that go from a state of not having pharmaceutical patents to now having pharmaceutical patents, yet having very different types of pharmaceutical patent systems. Variation that will sound very nerdy, but quite important. You might implement a pharmaceutical patent system that doesn't really affect the price of drugs because you do it in such a way that even though you're going to grant the patent on a drug that's going to give, a, give one supplier essentially monopoly, status, monopoly rights for a while, you can moderate those prices more easily. You could subject it to, to import competition and get it to lower prices. You might adopt a pharmaceutical patent system that exacerbates those effects. You could think of a wide range of variation there. So all countries are going to now have pharmaceutical patent systems, but their effects on prices might matter. And the effects on prices, in, in turn, have implications for our ability to achieve and sustain universal health care. What's the trade-off? The trade-off is that the extent to which countries might be very minimalist, or the extent to which countries might be very excessive in their patent systems, will probably depend to some extent on the extent to which they want to achieve very good market access for their exporters. And what the result of that is, and this is essentially the punchline, 
is that the politics of expanding and achieving and sustaining universalism, again, with universalism defined as including access to a wide range of drugs in a wide range of therapeutic segments, features a trade-off between one set of actors in society that prioritize the healthcare and the lowering of the price of the input into healthcare, in this case drugs, and another set of actors in society that might prioritize market access and improving the country's export profile and export performance. Those are broad trade-offs of principle that are linked in a political sense to sets of actors. Health ministries, health communities on the one hand, and perhaps ministries of trade, ministries of industry on the other hand. How that conflict gets resolved country by country is essentially what a large part of my research has been on, but how that co conflict gets resolved country by country helps us understand to what extent countries are able to, again, achieve and sustain different levels of universalism, repeating this dimension of universalism having to do with pharmaceuticals. Um, and I'll, be, I'll turn it over to Daniel, who is, can talk more about some of the Latin American cases, but, but one of the countries that I've been researching that has really faced this dilemma straight on and has, the, has struggled with it the most, and whether we can say it succeeded or, fa or, or is succeeding or was succeeding is something we can come back to, is the case of Brazil, which is one of the giant countries in the world that actually has universal health care um, and has really been sort of at the knife's edge of this conflict between the trade-offs between what it needs to do to have universal health care and what it, another segment wants to do for achieving good market access for its exports. Ken, can I actually follow up sure. with you, if your voice will hold out? Um, uh, maybe Calypso mentioned the HIV case, and I don't know if you wanted to come back to that. But certainly, I, I've worked on HIV research, and, and it was you know, often held up as a, as a classic case study of challenging intellectual property rights when uh, arguments were made for exemptions from patent protection for certain drugs that were otherwise unaffordable. Uh, and, and, and HIV drugs were one of those cases. And I'm wondering if you wanted to comment on whether or not that led to the trade-offs you spoke about, uh, or whether or not that is a viable solution to some of these problems of access. So that actually, I wouldn't say that led to the trade-offs. I would say that is, was basically an escape hatch that have alleviated some of the trade-offs in a way that's diminishing. And this gets to Calypso's comment or observation about first line versus second or third line. So excuse me, a very, very nerdy intervention here. But when this new obligation came around that said all countries must grant pharmaceutical patents, it only applied going forward. It didn't apply to drugs that already existed. It only applied basically to drugs that were not launched but invented, again, and launch usually follows invention by roughly 10 years. It only applied to drugs that were invented after 1995. It didn't apply to earlier drugs. The reason why that matters is that the Indian pharmaceutical in industry was able to produce any drug that was invented prior to 1995 without having to think about patents. And all of the, <clears throat> all of the first line and most of what we think of as second-line antiretrovirals were older drugs that were invented prior to 1995. So essentially, it was easy. Countries had to 
essentially change their national patent systems in order to take advantage of the Indian supply. That's what Brazil did. Brazil was in the spotlight because some of the drugs for, were not were patented in Brazil. And so all it had to do was basically figure out a way to get the Indian, access the Indian supply, which was there. That's not going to be there anymore because some of the second-line drugs and the third-line drugs, or think of it as the nth-line drugs, are going to, were invented after 1995, and they will have patents in India as well. So what we think about is a country toying around with its pharmaceutical patent system in order to exploit the existence of Indian supply. That was a window of opportunity that was there that will go away. So in that sense, in answer to the question that Justin asked, is this a useful way going forward, I actually don't think the, the issue going forward is what the countries, the importing countries do. It all comes down to, it, it all comes down to India. And basically what happens in India to pharmaceutical patents, not just antiretrovirals, but all pharmaceuticals that were invented after 1995 and therefore can be patented in that country. Thank you. And, and now let's maybe move to Daniel. Um, so Ken brought us to Brazil, and uh, your work uh, is focused in Brazil and in Latin America. Uh, but you come at it from a very different uh, disciplinary background, one of law and ethics, I believe. Is that right? So please, can you tell us a bit about what you've been looking at in this question of universalism? Sure. Uh, hi. Hello. Good evening. Uh, it's very good to be, to be back here to the LSE. Uh, as Justin mentioned, I'm a legal scholar, and my research is mainly on the judicial review of healthcare rationing decisions. And my focus is on Brazil, but I've also done work on uh, other countries, including here in England. Uh, today, I want to talk about the relationship between universal health coverage and the right to health, which was defined in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights as the right to the highest attainable level of physical and mental health. And universal health coverage and the right to health, they go hand in hand. The right to health, some say, contains universal health coverage. And it's impossible, or nearly impossible, to promote the right to health without some sort of universal health coverage being in place. And indeed, the idea that uh, the barriers, the financial barriers for accessing uh, essential health care should be removed is at the core of both universal health coverage and uh, the right to health. And the right to health also gives universal health coverage uh, normative power. When we anchor universal health coverage in the right to health, when universal health coverage is rooted in the right to health, it becomes more than a mere political aim. It becomes a legal duty under international law. But the right to health is more than universal health coverage because health is more than healthcare. So universal health coverage will only promote, will only realize the right to health to a certain extent. We have also to look at other factors outside the healthcare system that will impact health, uh, basic sanitation, uh, poverty, reproductive rights, uh, malnutrition, pollution. So 
health is more than health care, and the right to health is more than universal health coverage. And the right to health can also collaborate with universal health coverage by establishing some principles that will inform those making decisions uh, in the context of universal health coverage, those who are, are working for universal health coverage. Principles such as non-discrimination, uh, human dignity, accountability. So this will inform decisions in the area of uh, universal health coverage. And the right to health can also uh, give some interesting thoughts about how decisions in the area of universal health coverage are made, the choices that are being made. As, for instance, there is a very interesting paper by uh, Claire Lugar, and she asks uh, the following question. So what's the place for asylum seekers, undocumented migrants, refugees in universal health coverage? Are we talking about universal health coverage for residents and citizens, or are we talking about universal health coverage full stop? So universal health coverage and the right to health, they are conceptually very close, and one reinforces the other. But when we uh, leave the more uh, conceptual level and we look at concrete decisions that have to be made, we realize that there can be tension. No country in the world can provide everything to everyone at any time. So priorities have to be set, as uh, Calypso has mentioned. And setting priorities means that for some people, we're going to say yes. For others, we're going to say no or not yet. And what about the right to health of those who received a no or not yet? How can we reconcile the need to set priorities and the right to health? And there are three uh, answers to this tension. So one of them is to say that there is actually no tension because the right to health requires good priority setting. Health systems that, not, that do not set priorities fairly and efficiently will not be able to provide the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. And the right to health does not create an individual entitlement to the best care existent in the world. It rather creates the duty for the state to take steps uh, with a view to progressively realize the right to health within available resources. So there is no tension. Priority setting is part of universal health coverage and is part of the right to health. A second answer to uh, this tension between universal health coverage and the right to health uh, is to admit that there is a tension. It exists, it is real, and it is good. It is good because the right to health sets the goal very high. And this creates a constant pressure that will move countries in the direction of universal health coverage. So when someone claims that his or her right to health is being violated because he or she is not receiving uh, a certain treatment, then this is an indication that there are areas that have been neglected or that there are areas that need, uh, that need further attention. So there is this tension, and it is good. The third uh, answer, the third way to uh, understand this tension is to admit that it exists, but to recognize that there is a problem here and that the right to health can be an obstacle 
for universal health coverage. I, I'm going to spend a bit more of time uh, on this thought, and I, I want to talk about uh, my main area of research, which is the so-called uh, judicialization of the right to health or right to health uh, litigation. To make a long story short, uh, the recognition of the right to health in national constitutions and by uh, courts have, has entitled individuals who were denied health treatment by their health systems to go to courts and claim the provision of the treatments that they were uh, denied. And I want to discuss this phenomenon looking at uh, two countries, Brazil and Colombia. Uh, in Brazil, uh, these sort of uh, lawsuits started in the mid-90s, but they've exploded in the last 10, 15 years. In Brazil, we are talking about thousands and thousands of cases. And uh, litigation is mainly driven by claims for new and expensive health technologies for high-cost <coughs> drugs that have not been incorporated uh, in the public health system. So drugs that are not part of the official lists created by the government, drugs that are not part of the clinical protocols. So they are not in the basket that was selected by the health system for regular and universal uh, provision. And these uh, drugs that are claimed via courts include uh, treatments that, have no, uh, mar that do not have marketing authorization and treatments that can only be performed abroad. And patients in Brazil, the litigants, the claimants, they tend to be very successful. Their rate of success is extremely high. And it is high because courts, they tend to accept a simple medical prescription as sufficient evidence that the patient needs that treatment. Even when the treatment claimed by the patient is an unregistered treatment, or even when there is a therapeutic alternative provided by the health uh, system. And, of course, they also interpret the right to health as meaning that whenever there is a health need, there is the right to receive a certain health treatment, uh, irrespective of the cost. And this interpretation of the right to health has uh, budgetary consequences. So in Brazil, the, according to the Ministry of Health, nationally, about per year, about uh, in British pounds, uh, 1.5 billion pounds are being spent per uh, year to comply with judicial decisions. In the state of Sao Paulo, the richest state in Brazil, uh, the Secretary of State for Health is currently spending per year about uh, 250 million British pounds. But what does it mean? It's more or less half of the budget of the state for drugs. So imagine the budget for drugs, half of which is being spent to comply with judicial decisions. Uh, in Brazil, then, uh, litigation, uh, the right to health as interpreted by courts, is actually making the health system less fair and less efficient. It makes the system less fair because it creates a two-tier public system one for those who have access to courts and have access to basically uh, whatever their doctors uh, prescribe them, and the other for the rest of the population who has a much more limited basket of uh, products and uh, services. And this basket is probably smaller because resources are being diverted to benefit those on the upper tier. 
It also makes the system less efficient because an enormous amount of resource uh, is being spent based on very limited scientific evidence or sometimes even against scientific evidence. And with almost complete disregard to cost effectiveness, to budgetary impact, and to the needs of the rest of the population. A very similar story can be told about Colombia. Thousands and thousands of individual uh, lawsuits claiming high cost treatments, including treatments that are not in the official uh, basket selected by uh, the government, and courts making decisions based on very poor scientific uh, evidence. And in Colombia, according to Eberardo Lamprea, uh, from 2005 to 2010, uh, the Colombian government spent about uh, $3.2 billion to comply with judicial decisions. And this is just a fraction of the total cost created by courts because the threat of litigation has led to the administrative provision of treatments that are exclu excluded from the basket ordinarily available uh, to patients. And in Colombia, it's possible to, to notice an increase in the expenditure on uh, drugs. And this comes uh, concomitantly with uh, the stagnation of preventive health measures and the deterioration in key social determinants of health in Colombia. So right to health litigation, judicialization of the right to health has opportunity costs. And uh, recently, uh, uh, well, not that recently, in 2015, a new legislation was passed in Colombia, and this brings uh, enormous change to the Colombian health system. And uh, the Colombian Constitutional Court, when controlling the constitutionality, when reviewing the constitutionality of this legislation, uh, determined that uh, the provision of treatments can only be denied based on evidence of effectiveness, safety, and efficacy. And that uh, the financial sustainability of the health system cannot justify the denial of efficient and timely provision of health services. Which means that, in practice, the Constitutional Court is saying that cost effectiveness and budgetary impact cannot inform priority setting in Colombia, or cannot explicitly inform priority setting in Colombia. And just uh, to conclude, so priority, uh, universal health coverage and the right to health, they are conceptually very close. But there are some interpretations and some applications of the right to health that actually create an obstacle for universal health coverage. Thank you very much, Daniel. So, I mean, I could, I could follow up, but I think we want to have plenty of time for people in the audience to ask questions as well, and, and perhaps some discussion between. But I think it's a fascinating example you give there, because those living in the UK are very aware, especially if you've studied NICE and how it makes decisions, of, of the explicit you know, rationing that's done and the budgetary constraint being paramount in terms of how much money will be spent on a drug if it extends life by a certain amount. Um, and so for the conclusion to be that that should not be a decision is, is a fundamental difference in how the political system views uh, healthcare. And, and you can argue that that helps increase budgets in countries which may you know, not have sufficient budget, that the budget constraint 
should be pushed back on, as you said, uh, that second idea that it's a driver of greater increase. But you mentioned some really interesting equity issues, uh, and clearly you cannot increase budgets indefinitely. So thank you for that. But why don't we open it up to the audience? We have a number of hands coming up here. So uh, we, will, we will try to follow LSE protocol as well and have a gender balance, but I think we will, with the hands I see. Uh, we'll start in the back there, and then we'll move up to the front here. Let's have those two questions to start. Uh, and then maybe we'll move on from there. And please introduce yourself, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Hi, uh, my name's Slavia. Uh, I work in health policy. Um, I had a question for Ken. Um, and also, sorry, thank you very much. This has all been really interesting. Um, so, presumably with your idea of the sort of trade-off between market access and universal access to healthcare, uh, there has to be a balance, and my question is, essentially, who, who do you think, or has anyone struck that balance, um, or is there something around the fact that within the Global South, they're not really able to mimic any kind of balance that you get in the Global North, because the Global North have set the sort of precedent for how their trade system and their patent systems work, and the Global South is kind of just playing catch-up. Um, and if I could be really cheeky and just ask a clarification point from Daniel. So is your point that actually the right to health litigation is just not the pathway at all that countries should take to universal health care? Okay, thank you. And let's go to the front here if we can take a few questions. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. So uh, I'm Chi Siang. I'm from Singapore and I'm currently studying abroad at King's. So uh, I think from a lot of the discussion that was made by the panelists, there was a reference to the fact that one of the biggest problems with regards to universality of healthcare is that there tends to be limitations as to the budget of these countries in the global south. But as of now, a lot of the growth models practiced by countries in the global south tend to be towards low tax because they want to encourage global capital to come in to invest in these countries so as to prevent capital flight. And also there's problems with regards to corruption as well in terms of collecting revenue because a lot of this uh, tax money gets siphoned off towards private interests. So I was wondering uh, what sort of solutions are there actually possible for countries of the global south to actually raise sufficient budget to actually increase the universality of that healthcare and how this can actually be reconciled with the political realities and the growth model that they have uh, in sometimes chosen or sometimes been pressured into accepting. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Why don't we start with those? Um, I think Daniel's first question was, sorry, it was actually to Ken, the first question, and then a clarification. Yeah, thanks. So. I do think that in general, it's fair to say that we're at a period of still learning and sleuthing and trying to see what the right balance might be. Um, when I look at the countries that I've studied the most carefully, when I think of, I think Brazil is actually an interesting illustration of both getting the balance wrong and then maybe getting the balance right. So the reason why Brazil had so many problems in the 2000s is that it, had the, it got the balance wrong in the 1990s. And because the Brazilians wanted to get such good market access to the US that they ended up allowing patents on lots of drugs that they ought not to have to allow. You might have asked yourself while I was speaking, if these older 1995 drugs didn't have patents in India, then why did they have patents in Brazil? It's because the, Indian, because the Brazilians decided that they wanted to get market access so badly they, they, they did well more than they needed to do. 
So when I look at Brazil in the 1990s, I say they clearly got the balance wrong. In the 2000s, and it's, this, is not a, this is not a partisan statement because it actually began before the switch in governments in Brazil. They start to modify the system to try to claw back some of the excesses of the 1990s, and I think they got the balance right. So I've, of the countries that I've spent the most amount of time studying, I would say that Brazil, post-1999, basically, started to get the balance right. The problem is, is that, and this is where the learning and the sleuthing comes in, is that I don't think that even the, the balance that the Brazilians have currently struck is sustainable. In fact, the Brazilians know that the balance that they've currently struck is not sustainable because ultimately, eventually, they're not going to be able to continue to rely on India. And in a sense, what they're going to need to do is also develop their own pharmaceutical capabilities, which they're still eons away from, which is something we haven't talked about yet. There was a clarification point to you. Yes. Uh, look, I don't have anything against judicial review or, or judicial control. I think judicial review can do great things in the area of priority setting. So for instance, uh, controlling the quality of the procedure used to make uh, uh, rationing decisions, whether the decision was based on uh, sound uh, scientific evidence, whether it was transparent, whether it was inclusive. So there are many things judicial review can do to make priority setting uh, stronger, more accountable, more transparent. But I have a problem with the interpretation of the right to health that ignores the need for priority setting. Because instead of making priority setting stronger, more robust, what courts are doing when they ignore the need for priority setting is basically to force priority setting to be implicit or and to allow some people to circumvent priority setting decisions via their lawyers and courts. Do you want to come in? Yeah, I just I wanted to, well, I wanted to make a couple of points. The, the first is um, related to, to what you've just said, and, and I had the chance actually to meet the um, chief judge, the head of the High Court in Colombia, who issued the uh, ruling uh, about merging the two packages, supplement, what was called supplementary non so it was two-tier uh, system in Colombia offering different types of care to poorer people and people who could contribute. And the, the, the court said you should connect, you should bring the two together, unify the system, and unify it upwards. So everybody gets the Rolls-Royce package. Plus, we will challenge any uh, decision, any attempt by the state to ration. So we, we asked him why uh, he thought this was uh, a sustainable approach and why didn't they care about money and his answer was that uh, it was about process it was the lack of process the package Colombia had said back then hadn't been reviewed for 10 or 15 years so he was saying well how is it possible that there's any rationale uh, in terms of what is actually being provided nobody's actually looking at the new developments and updating the package. so I think I, I agree with Daniel uh, uh, but I, I at the same time I think there's this procedural issue which matters a lot. So how, how, can, can governments demonstrate, payers demonstrate, that they're trying to uh, prioritize in a way that uh, allows people to understand at least why they get access to something and not something else. But there certainly is, the whole thing is skewed towards people who have access to courts and, 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 the, and, and the judiciary. And the second point I wanted to make was linked to what, what you were saying, Ken, and I, and I wonder, I mean, 
in many countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where patented drugs is not the issue, most countries there are accessing generic drugs and branded generic drugs, and they pay massive premiums even on generic drugs. So we did some work in Ghana, and if Ghana were to get the generic prices that the UK gets through its fairly competitive generics market, for hypertensives alone, it could end up using the savings from getting the price the NHS gets, uh, effectively offering care to everybody who has diagnosed hypertension but they're not uh, being cared for. So people who are going to have a stroke or a heart attack in the next 12 months or so. Um, so I think there's, there's an issue about patents and about also functioning markets, competition between generics, regulation which allows drugs to actually make it to the market. Gilead uh, voluntarily licensed its hepatitis C drugs uh, in a number of countries. In Southeast Asia, many countries uh, actually got access to the product, but in Africa, very few did because nobody bothered to bring this product through the regulatory systems, which are quite archaic. Um, the supply chains are difficult. There's lo lots of markups. In Zambia, the end price to patient of the drug, and there's a lot of out-of-pocket there, is, is uh, if, if you think about it, only 30% of the end price is the X-factory price of the patent. 70% is markups through wholesalers, exchange rates, cash flow issues, supply chains that are ridiculously expensive, stockouts, and a really dysfunctional system. That just, so everything could be off-patent, and still people could not access things. So, I think you know, voluntary licensing or compulsory licensing is not necessarily the answer to people accessing care. Okay. And we also had a question at the front about low-income settings. And if I paraphrase it correctly, you were asking about the ability to raise budgets and to raise finance for the healthcare system. Would anyone like to comment on that? Any thoughts? Certainly, we're seeing, Calypso, you mentioned earlier today to me, seeing you know, plateaus in donor funds. So that's going to even increase the pressure even more on low-income countries. I mean, it's a, it's a hard question to address because it's such a big question. It's ultimately the biggest question in all of development. It's essentially how can countries have more resources and increase their, essentially, their taxation capabilities. And it's, yeah, I don't think we know the answer to that question. Um, it's, it's, it's almost, it's too big to address. Um, what, what it's putting out is a, I guess I would just say that the question of achieving universalism then is linked to these broader issues of economic development and the accumulation of resources. Um, I think it would be unfortunate if the takeaway was that you can't have universalism until you're really wealthy. Um, but that's essentially what you're asking is how can countries generate the resources to make this happen? Um, we don't know that. We don't know the answer to that. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, let's take two or three more questions. I saw a couple in the middle before. So there's uh, one here, um, lady with her hand up there, and then we'll come down to the front here as well. So uh, uh, about six or seven rows back, and then the front. Thank you. Hi, so my name is Rachel Crockett. I'm from I'm the Wellcome Trust in the global policy team. So I lead on our access to healthcare interventions and sustainable R&D files. So this is quite relevant to the stuff that I work on. Um, so my question is just to pick up on the transition piece and the graduating country piece. Um, so I would potentially flip it around and ask the question of how we're able to reconcile all countries, in particular donor countries, commitment to UHC, particularly because it's such a, a mandate of, of many donor countries' ODA spending, uh, and how 
in, particularly in the context of donor uh, and graduate graduating countries, um, and then the consequential withdrawal of, of donor funding um, because of it. And I think if you think countries are making choices now, you can bet it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to make the choices in coming years once uh, donor funding is is, uh, is is being pulled out. For example, um, the example of polio, for example, where we've done an amazing job of polio eradication, but actually you think of if someone is giving a vaccination for polio, they're giving a lot of other immunizations at the same time. And once polio money is withdrawn, then you're actually losing a core aspect of routine immunization in many countries. So I suppose my question is there is, is where is the UHC in that? Um, and how do we actually bring that back to donors and donors, uh, onus, onus on donors to to really put their money where their mouth is in achieving UHC uh, across the world. But then also how do we how do we ensure access to interventions that we don't even have yet but that we hope or know are coming that are going to be a lot more expensive. So how do we in the context of graduating countries ensure that they have the when they when an HIV vaccine comes to comes when a TB vaccine comes going to be much more expensive. We've got countries that aren't able to access donor funding anymore. How are we going to make sure that that happens through the through the uh, systems that we have. Thank you. And then if we can come to the frontier please. <coughs> Um, thank you. My name is Rispa. I'm from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, so my question was uh, just about an, any panelist can answer. But um, when we're discussing trade-offs, um, I wanted to find out like what your opinion is in terms of the role of the private sector, um, which caters to a lot of the population in many low- and middle-income countries, particularly in Africa. Um, and I wanted to find out what your opinion was on the impact on sustainability, especially when you have a lot of the national health insurance schemes that you know, reimburse um, these private facilities because they provide this care, um, especially since um, many of the services that are that the private facilities are providing are not available in the public facilities. And so, again, you're trying to reconcile the right to right to health and also the fact that this is might not be sustainable for the budgets that are available. Great, thank you. <clears throat> Anyone want to come in on either of those? So the first one about graduating countries, getting donors to step up, or the role of the private sector and, and how, how that plays into it? Uh, I can give it a go. Uh, sure. uh, so very good question about the private sector. Uh, uh, actually, it reminds me of uh, two cases that are directly related to your question. So the first case is the case of uh, Chow Li in, in Canada. I think some of you already know this case. So basically, in, uh, in Quebec, uh, there was uh, a ban on private health care, uh, at least private health care, private insurance that covers uh, services that are already provided by the public system. So there was basically a monopoly, no competition from the private sector. Uh, but Mr. Chow Lee and uh, another person, a patient, I forgot his name, uh, went to court claiming that, they were, that this patient was in the waiting list and he was waiting for too long. And he wanted the right to buy private insurance. And interestingly, uh, the Quebec government was against it, the public opinion was against it, they wanted the system to be uh, uh, fully, fully public, uh, but uh, the court in Canada decided that he had the right to uh, buy private health insurance because it was his right to life that was involved. So, of course, intervening actually to 
opened up the possibility for uh, a private system in Quebec. And the other case is the case uh, mentioned by Calypso in which the uh, Constitutional Court of Colombia basically ordered the, the systems that were separated with different baskets, with different packages to be unified so everyone will have access to the same uh, package. I don't know if I'm directly answering uh, your question, but there is this very interesting uh, movement of using the language of rights, using the language of the right to life, the right to health, uh, either to uh, try to unify the systems and also to uh, separate them. I mean, I, I, think, I think the transition question is, is a great one. I mean, I was just looking at the PEPFAR figure. So for Mozambique, PEPFAR makes up 40% of the total health expenditure. For Nigeria, Cameroon, it's 7 to 8%. And now it's been announced that we're going to have roughly 20% cuts with the Trump administration aid. So that will have huge implications on some of the budgets in these countries and mainly affecting commodities because the countries use their own resources to pay for salary costs. So the donors are mostly funding uh, uh, drugs and, and, and technologies. Or already this has happened, the Global Fund no longer pays for first-line TB treatments anywhere. So even those countries that are not graduating, uh, are actually graduating in that they have to, to generate the resources. And it's not just the resources, it's also the governance arrangement. It's the ability to license things, to demonstrate that the, their market is attractive enough to negotiate with manufacturers, to bring things through and have effective supply chains that make sure things get to people, to have governance amongst the clinical profession so that the right thing gets prescribed to the right person at the right time. And these things are not necessarily there because the, uh, uh, certainly the MDGs, the B, malaria, HIV vaccines, the global community has been bypassing the local political economy, not building capacities in countries because they wanted to treat, they wanted to manage the crisis of HIV of, and the, you know, we've done relatively well, but the, the result has also been that countries do not have capacity to manufacture, for instance. So the reliance of uh, all these global funders on Indian manufacturing has meant that there's almost no manufacturing in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so there's all sorts of issues that need to be addressed that go beyond money that have to do with skills. And, and that's why I think it's relevant also the private sector. You can't do things without the private sector because it's, it's where it is. And, you know, we know in the majority of sub-Saharan Africa, a market of about 50 to 60 billion dollars in commodities, drugs, and only 10% of that is donor funded. So the remainder is mostly people paying out of pocket. They're going to the local pharmacy. So you'd hope that sl slowly this thing, you know, purchasing would be pulled and people would be purchasing on behalf of others. But it's not happening yet. And I think. I don't have anything against the private sector, but I think it needs to be regulated. And again, so do governments, do, do they have the skills to regulate? We've seen it in this country, the early PFIs with the NHS were a disaster. And then, you know, we've learned how to negotiate them better. And the later PFIs, you know, building hospitals were relatively okay. So it's about the ability to manage uh, all these different stakeholders. And then when these guys become entrenched, can you move them on? South Africa, 16% of the population consuming 50% of the resources through the <coughs> private sector. They're not going to roll over and die as universal coverage comes in. So what's their role? They have a valuable set of skills, but can we use these skills to get access to get people access to the services? And I'm not sure what the answer to this is. Can you? Yeah, I wanted to just pipe in. I wanted to address the private sector question, but I also wanted to tie that to something that Calypso said a moment ago <clears throat> about it's not all about patents, because of course it's not. Countries need to, they need to have a national medicines policy. 
to make, make a wide range of drugs affordable and available. The patents are only a small part of that. The patents matter on the new drugs, the drugs for which there aren't functional substitutes. Patents matter on antiretrovirals for AIDS. The old drugs don't work. I mean, the, old, the old previous drugs don't exist, and the first-line drugs will stop working. Patents matter in cancer drugs. Uh, patents now, now are going to matter in hepatitis C, because we have a new drug that didn't used to exist. But for lots of drugs that matter for health care, patents have no, are totally irrelevant. Because as Calypso says, they're older drugs. There's no patent anywhere. You don't, so patents are essentially irrelevant now for hypertension drugs and you know, for cholesterol-lowering drugs and so on. What's the point? There's no reason why countries should be using branded generics. They should be using regular generics. That's a, the, a medicine's policy goes way beyond patents. A medicine's policy also includes government procurement, making sure the distribution system doesn't lead to these gigantic markups that Calypso talks about. It also means getting doctors to prescribe by the generic name rather than by the brand name and getting pharmacists to, to make these available. There's, there's many, many pieces. The patents are a small part of it. So you need to have a national medicines policy that, that, it, that secures or promotes access to affordable drugs across a wide spectrum. So where does the private sector fit in? So one of the other countries that I've, most of my research is, like I said, I've looked in Brazil a lot. One of the other countries that I've spent a lot of time looking in is Argentina. If you just look at the patent side, they look like the ones who got them, the, they got the trade off the best. In other words, they didn't make any of the excesses that the Brazilians did. They don't have the problems of lots of things that are under patent. They, had, they, had, they embraced their new global obligations very intelligently from a patent perspective. But the reason why they did that, the reason why they were able to do that, is because the Argentine pharmaceutical industry, the private industry, is very strong. So they were able to get their government to stand up, and in that trade-off between the exporters and the health or the pharma, the, the first side, get the, get the health side to prevail. However, the rest of the Argentine medicines policy is a total disaster because the same actors who are good enough to help the government, who are strong enough to help the government sort of oppose Pfizer et al., are also strong enough to oppose any of the other things that the governments want to do to improve the distribution system, to lower markups, to increase the use of generic rather than branded drugs. So here, the, so here the private sector is a, plays a double-edged role. On the one hand, it prevents the, it's prevented the country from adopting a patent system that is excessive and drives up the price of drugs. That's good. But it's also prevented the government or slowed down any ability for the government to have a medicines policy for a different segment of drugs, which is problematic. Okay, why don't we take one or two more questions and then have a couple of minutes to sum up. So there's a gentleman up there. I'm going to keep, keep your hand up maybe so you can, yeah. And then is there anyone else who wants to come in or? Okay, then, oh yes, and then one more here. So these last, we'll make these the last two and then we'll have a few summaries, please. Hi, uh, my name's Tassin. I finished a master's in public health at King's last year. Um, so firstly, I had a question about um, 
structural adjustment programs in the um, in places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa and whether there's inherently a tension between universal health coverage and essentially what's a neoliberal agenda of privatizing healthcare um, and actually creating inequality in the system um, and how you overcome that when trying to um, enforce or, or, or try to bring in universal healthcare. Um, and secondly, um, to uh, Daniel, I just want to ask, um, can you make a comment about the Cancer Drug Fund, which um, where they, there was an assessment that only 20% of the drugs uh, used were actually of clinical benefit, and actually it's a waste of money uh, where we're spending about two billion pounds a year on these drugs that aren't necessarily uh, effective or, um, or cost-effective um, in, uh, in that sense. So was, was that Cancer Drug Fund set up to avoid judicial reviews do you think or was it a sort of a populist move by politicians at the uh, at the time of the coalition government okay and let's come here for the final question yeah. um my, yeah my name is oliver fiala um, research advisor with save the children um i just have a um, wanted to hear your thoughts on a more equity lens um, of universal health coverage and what are the challenge challenges to reach more like excluded groups and marginalized groups all right, so we have those last three questions. Um, anyone want to start on any of them? I mean, I, um, I know the Cancer Drugs Fund went for Daniel, but I think I don't, I, my take, I don't know what you think, was, is not that the judicial, that people were worried about judicial review. In fact, if anything, the judges in this country uh, would throw out most cases brought by pharma or individual patient associations precisely because they would feel the process had been followed, and also it's a different judicial system between, between Latin America and the UK. So, um, but that, so, so I don't think that was the, the, the concern, uh, but, it, but it was a political move. I mean, Cameron uh, had the big sort of billboard, we'll, 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 we'll pay for cancer drugs, and, and this was a pre-election, uh, an election campaign commitment. And they came in. They did it. They did. They did their sums wrong, which was, was a shame. I mean, they thought they added up how much it would cost to pay for all cancer drugs. That I said no to Daily Mail gone about, and it turns out they got it wrong. And of course, things escalated, and 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 now we're sort of trying to to the system sort of trying to readjust itself. Uh, but I think a lot of harm has been done in, in that. What we haven't talked about is the rights of the people who lose out in a budgetary constraint system who are not there to, to make a case because they don't know they're losing out. Uh, but we have empirical evidence now to show exactly which diseases and conditions get displaced when these new technologies uh, would, that do not offer much uh, value in terms of health get, get approved. So I think that's highly uh, problematic. And then we also had questions about structural adjustment and the last one about equity uh, and marginalized populations. Any, any thoughts on those from any of you? And not to put anyone in the spotlight. One second step. Okay, go first. Um, I'm not sure I have actually too much to say about either of those other than with structural adjustment, it turns out whether it works or not. It gets back to the first question that was asked at the first round of questions by a colleague here down in the first row about countries getting the resources. If, if it works the way the, it's supposed to work, then they'll have more resources. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to have fewer resources. I think I'm not saying anything that's not blindingly obvious, but um, 
that's the question is whether or not the structural adjustment has beneficial effects on the economy. With the caveat being that any country that basically is entering into a structural adjustment program, its economy must already be in poor shape. So it's probably not going to have good resources, a lot of resources for universalism. Um, and with regard to the mar uh, marginalized communities, I think that just I think it's implicit in all of these discussions of trade-offs that in order to prevail in a conflict over trade-off, you have to have a voice. And by definition, if you're talking about a marginalized community, they're not going to have much of a voice. I mean, it was probably most explicit in Daniel's comment. They're not the ones who have access to the litigation. But in general, I think whenever we're talking about trade-offs, there's a set of actors there who are, if they're marginalized, almost by definition, we're suggesting, at least I'm suggesting, I don't mean to put words in my colleagues' mouths, that, these that they're going to come out as the losers because they're not going to have a seat at the table or a voice to participate. I think I'm going to use your question to actually to, uh, ask uh, for Calypso's views on uh, this uh, topic, because my impression, and here I may be wrong, and I can draw you in if you, if you don't mind, uh, is that uh, so nice was an attempt to somehow depoliticize these very difficult rationing decisions. So you make it more technical, you make it uh, the procedure more transparent, more legitimate, and you depoliticize it in a way. Uh, but the Cancer Drugs Fund was a, a repoliticization of uh, rationing decisions in the sense that it was a political decision to single out uh, a group of disease and say, this is a special, this has a special uh, funding. So my question is, so, uh, is my interpretation correct? Is this a form of repoliticized re uh, rationing decisions? And uh, my question to Justine is uh, about the politics of uh, health technology assessment, because we, we tend to think of uh, those working with health technology assessment that is a technical decision based on, on evidence. Of course, there is deliberation, uh, but, but in the end, the decisions are made at a, at a higher level. Okay. <clears throat> I, I think I would agree with that. I won't take up too much time to answer because we have about five minutes and I want to give our panel members time to respond. But as you, as you asked me directly, I mean, I think I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a political scientist because I don't hold the official degrees in it. And an institution like this would be very dangerous. But I do study the politics of, of of um, evidence, and you know, I think policymakers, to see, uh, politicians in particular, are incentivized by what works on election campaigns. And I think in this point in time, uh, there were enough, there was enough media attention and enough BBC breakfast shows where people were saying it's not fair that these drugs are not being provided. That it, there was political traction for the coalition government to set up this fund, uh, and and I think that's primarily what they respond to. I also am. Uh, you know, an institutionalist in many ways, and I think you know the institution of Nice only has power, uh, you know, if it's seen as legitimate, uh, and if we collectively, whether it's the medical profession, whether it's academics, whether it's politicians, whether it's uh, civil society, um, stand behind it and you know uh, ensure that its uh, its logic, its reasoning, if we agree with it, is upheld. And so, you know, I think there could have been more discussion and debate about that fund. Uh, and what it means for the other important decisions that we've tried to institutionalize and try to formalize, and does it weaken that institution potentially? I don't think that's really been an explicit discussion, but that would be my take on it. I don't know if clips of you have I agree. I think, I think it was politics, yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily not legitimate. I mean, you know, if, if, if through the parliament or the press, the views of the public were expressed to mean that 
the lives of people with cancer are 2.1 times uh, more uh, important, which is what the waiting of, 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 of in fact, nice to start with, uh, with the end-of-life guidance um, uh, valued, you know, over two times as much as people with congestive heart failure. Um, then, you know, do you formalize this and you make it the rule? Uh, and that's effectively what happened, more or less. Now, what also happened is the NHS ran out of money. And, and that brought us all back to thinking, well, actually, we can't afford this thing, and we got ourselves wrong. Uh, so it was a bit of a, um, you know, mess. <laughs> okay, well, we, we've only got about three minutes left, so I'd like to just give our panelists one minute each. Uh, if you have a thought or two, they have to be brief, on what do you see for the future of universal health coverage? What do you think needs to happen? What do you think would be important steps to take towards universalism? Would anyone like to start? We're going the order that we started. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think I think as you said, I think institutions matter. Um, I'm I'm not sure whether economic growth drives institutional strengthening or whether institutional strengthening can happen through various interventions, and this then enhances economic growth. The econometrics tends to be sort of endogenous and, and not necessarily helpful here, but. Uh, uh, and I think that countries that do not have institutions cannot control the different stakeholders and their interests. So there's interests in public and private, and big and small, um, are, in, uh, are unlikely to achieve universal coverage, however they define it and uh, in whatever shape and form they aspire towards it. Um, so that's, it's tricky. Okay. So my suggestion actually is to turn everything upside down. And instead of thinking about the conditions for achieving universalism is just to declare universalism and then force yourself to grow into it. Um, and that basically once a, once a country basically takes a measure towards universalism, it basically creates obligations. These obligations generate social constituencies that demand for continuity. They also create some of the warts that Daniel mentioned with litigation. Um, and it might then lead health policymakers to think of other solutions even moving into the realm of industrial development to create a more sort of self-technologically independent, self-sustaining pharmaceutical industry. Um, so rather than think about all the things we have to put in place to get there, let's just try to jump there and then grow into it. Okay. Uh, uh, I think we should widen our scope a bit or a lot. Uh, so especially in uh, low and middle income countries, uh, there is no, I think it's, so the problem is not only the lack of health care in these countries or bad health care. The problem is much bigger, and it will have an impact on health care. So for instance, in Brazil, uh, there is a cash transfer program called uh, Bolsa Familia. So if you are poor, the government will give you some uh, extra money. And a paper published two years ago in the Lancet showed that this has an impact on child mortality, especially child mortality caused by poverty, uh, diarrhea, for instance. And we also have to look at uh, other things, such as uh, reproductive rights. So uh, unsafe abortion is one of the main causes of death, uh, maternal death, in developing countries. And it's something that does not exist in countries where uh, safe abortion uh, exists, where 
uh, the law is more uh, tolerant towards the choices of, uh, of women. So I think it's important to widen uh, the scope and remember that uh, health is more than healthcare and then universal health coverage is just part of the story if we want a healthier society. Okay, great. Well, I think we're out of time now, so it just lands on me to say thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you very much to yourselves as well. A uh, round of applause, I think, is definitely in order.